Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. For every doc or nurse launching a direct primary clinic, there are 10 white coats going to work for nationally scaling DPC who are courting the larger and the mega employers. There are 2 million members who are served by about 2,200 mom and pop DPC, but 23 million are served by these larger players mostly run by docs. No one is reporting this. Nobody's studying this. And that's cool because you can meet them here on this podcast. The movement is well covered here. The leaders know this show because we feature them all the time. Now, for every nine big-owned surgery centers and for every 10 big-owned imaging centers, there are independents charging cash rates 40 to 60 and much as 80% less. For every mega PBM, there are discount pharmacies offering generics at pennies a pill. It's an ecosystem and a future where we all win. Wall Street has theirs. This movement is ours. And it's growing daily because it's literally the last place in primary care where everybody wins. Docs and nurses, for example, are one winner, and they are done charting at night when coding and billing are replaced by a monthly subscription model. What are you coding for if you're getting a paid already? Despite all the hoo-ha about value-based care, it's still a tiny percent in primary care. And it doesn't show any savings unless it's full risk, which is a tiny percent of the tiny percent of said VBC. Docs get more autonomy with lower-sized panels by 50 to 80% than the legacy, and they get more time in exams, more time in virtual calls, removing friction from all the encounters. 80 to 90% of exams can be handled virtually, and we know this now. But the best evidence is that the white coats are renewing in the high 90s at these new breed of firms catering to DPC employers. And to employers that have 23 million members as customers. Their NPS scores, net promoter scores, are there too, up in the 90s. And there's so there's basically zero evidence of burnout for well over 20,000 PCPs in this space. And why would there be? Employers are the second big winners with a cost that is not a cost. Because if the ROI is one to one, that's 100% return. That's free. Three to one by year three is pretty typical. And 10 to one when soft costs are calculated like workers' comp premium dropping, like retention and attraction issues falling away. Engagement goes up measurably. It ramps up. You can measure it. So it's a 10 to 1 or a 1,000% return. Would you take a 1,000% return in your IRA? I would. Employers are renewing 99% with my guests, the best metric, and now you know why. You can listen to our episode 22 show with Cole Johnson for that. Consumers no longer are we patients, win by friction and time and money evaporating. I have a doc in my pocket I trust now for five years. And shareholders win, and outcomes are up, and costs are down, and communities win too. Listen to the Rosen Hotel Show's episodes 54 and 56. So that's seven winners, which kicks the quadruple aim to the curb. 
So the direct contracting ecosystem is ignored by last week's New York Times deep dive into primary care. Nobody in academic studies it, no press anywhere, in fact, not just the Times. This show, it's all you got, meeting these CEOs and CMOs doing this at scale. They all show up here. And cutting-edge innovators, represented by today's guest, a great communicator, Dr. Frank Dumont of Verta Health, who is its commercial medical director, is back for round two. You hear from these folks, too, that are breaking the mold. Verna seems to have solved the type 2 diabetes dilemma, which is basically the lifestyle dilemma that is our top three medical conditions that are killing us, by significantly reversing A1C markers sustainably and in large cohorts. Last show, he said the highlight of his day is deprescribing insulin and other meds related. Frank, welcome back to the show. You got any comments before we get going? Oh, well, first of all, a very interesting intro, and I love to see the win-win scenarios. You know, that's part of what I really feel like we've been able to do over the last few years where I've been working at Verta. And I love that the medical field is continuing to evolve. You know, when I was in training, one of the things that I was told was that you would, you know, that I would practice the medicine that I learned in residency. And I'm really thankful that that was not indeed the case, uh, that we are learning as a profession. We're learning how to deliver better care. Can you imagine going back to working for a big hospital or a big insurance company or, I mean, if, can you even think about that now that you've been sort of in a nirvana situation? Uh, there, there were reasons why I left that situation and, <laughs> okay. and what I do right now is much more satisfying for sure. Okay. Well, I'm so excited. You know, when we spoke last a year and a half ago, Verta was just about to come up with five-year numbers. You now have Banner, Aetna, and others that are giving you some interesting results for large cohorts over six and 12 months. Tell us what's going on with the A1C world and it's very exciting stuff. Yeah, well, so great to be able to give you a little bit of an update. Uh, one of the things that I guess I would start with is just that reminder of what we do at Verta. So we are focused on nutrition therapy that's focused on carbohydrate restriction to a level that's appropriate for that individual. And we deliver that nutritional approach, taking advantage of technology. So we're essentially, again, in that pocket of the person uh, seven days a week with a coaching team and also a medical team, which allows us not only to help them get on course and stay on course, but also to remain safe and to deprescribe, to decrease those medications when it's appropriate as people improve. And we started out with that clinical trial that you alluded to with regard to our five-year data. So we started as a company back in 2014. We started our clinical trial in roughly 2015. That was initially designed to go for two years, so a prospective controlled trial. But at two years, we realized we really needed to extend that for another three years so that we could demonstrate the sustainability of and the ongoing effectiveness of this approach. Um, so, you know, really exciting to see us starting with that clinical trial, but that was a clinical trial. It was in central Indiana. It was a more homogeneous population. And since then, since we went public and have started, since we started to go to the market and we've started to uh, be able to work with more diverse and larger populations, we've been able to replicate much of what we saw in the clinical trial uh, in these larger and more diverse groups. And so that's really the things that I think have been the most exciting is, first of all, having that sustainability data, but then also being able to work with more diverse groups. And I can certainly go into those in a little bit more detail, maybe starting uh, with some of the groups that we've been working with, if that sounds okay to you. Sure. Well, let, let's first give us the three-year data, and then let's go into the Banner Health uh, Aetna situation, because uh, okay. I, I love hearing numbers. That really is something we can all anchor in. 
All right, certainly. Well, so yeah, the, the most recent presentation of our data was actually the five-year data from our clinical trial, and that was presented at the American Diabetes Association annual scientific sessions. Uh, so this was back in June of 22. Uh, and what it basically showed was a, a couple of things. First of all, that this lifestyle is indeed sustainable. You know, one of the pushbacks for carbohydrate restriction for a long time has been that one cannot do this sustainably, and that just is not true. It depends on how you do it. It depends on the level of education and support that you get around it. Because the bottom line is if you're eating foods that you enjoy and you're not restricting calories, counting calories, but just listening to your metabolism through that ongoing feedback with biomarkers, things like glucose and ketones and weight, it actually ends up being a very enjoyable and doable lifestyle. Um, so we had probably talked about some of the retention numbers from our clinical trial before. You know, at one year, we had 83% of people in the treatment arm that were still engaged and still participating in the treatment. At two years, it was 74%. At three and a half years, it was 65%. And if you look then forward to the five-year data, what we showed was that nearly 50% of individuals who had started in the treatment arm were still following that lifestyle and still right, that's, working. That's unheard of. Those numbers are unheard of. Nothing, yeah, nobody we, hits those kind of numbers. When you contrast that with typical lifestyle change programs where you see 15 to 30% adherence at one year, to be at nearly 50% of five years really, as you said, is unheard of. Mm -hmm. So that, that was the first thing. The second thing that was so exciting to me is the ongoing metabolic stability that these individuals had been able to achieve. So with, with this diabetes and, and other related conditions, we know that without some intervention, and even with a lot of our traditional interventions, things get worse over time. So for example, in our control arm in the, in the clinical trial, where people were working with endocrinologists, PCPs, certified diabetes educators, things got worse every year. Their A1C, that marker of diabetes control, climbed, even as we were adding in more and more medicines to try to struggle to maintain control. Now, in contrast, we were able to actually decrease the A1C by about 1.3 points by the end of the first year in the clinical trial in the intervention group with completers. But if you jump forward all the way to five years, that A1C was still below baseline, still below where they were at day zero, it was 0 0.3 below that five years out. So not only had they not seen that increase every single year, but they actually still saw it below where they started. And in addition to that, you know, as we talked about before, we do a lot of deprescribing of medication. So we were able to deprescribe the majority of diabetes medicines by the end of the first year. Well, at five years, people were still taking 60%, 60% less diabetes-specific med than they were at day zero. And so part of what I guess I take from this is that the A1C did go down and then came back up a little bit over the next few years, but we didn't lose metabolic control. It wasn't that the A1C was going up so sharply that we had to start adding all those diabetes meds back in. Rather, we helped people to find a way of doing this sustainably. If they had dropped their A1C all the way down to 5.9, well, that's great. But if they wanted to introduce a little bit more carbohydrate into their nutrition plan with a little bit more fruit or a little bit more of the starchier vegetables, that's okay as long as you're not losing metabolic control and adding meds back in. So again, 60% of the meds, uh, maybe I'll say this a different way. Again, they were 60% below baseline medication used for diabetes by the end of five years. And the last piece of it that was so exciting was the sustained weight loss. And again, this is an area where we know that we just don't do well with traditional weight loss programs where people are focused on a calorie deficit. They're trying to eat less or exercise more or both. We know that by the end of the third month, about 50% of people have left most of those programs. Well, if you look at our data for five years, the weight was still 7.6% below baseline body weight at five years. So again, that really shows for the sustainability of the metabolic benefits, getting to that clinically significant weight loss of 5% or more and keeping it there for many years, five years and going beyond.
Now, what's exciting is the last six to 12 months, you've got a different validation because if I were listening to this and I was a doctor, I'd say, well, he was dealing with white people in Indiana. Now, he wasn't dealing <laughs> yeah. with the Hispanic population. He didn't know how the blacks, how do you change people that, you know, they're black on their diets? They're not going to change. But you have discovered that you indeed can cross demographic boundaries, haven't you? Yeah. And so maybe I can start then with that is just some of our focus on DEI over the last couple of years. And so one of the things that we know is that people that are coming from racial or ethnic minorities or are struggling from a socioeconomic standpoint are disproportionately affected by metabolic disease. They have it more frequently, things like diabetes, and they have worse outcomes. So it's really important to have a treatment that actually works for those individuals as well. And, and what we've started doing over the last couple of years in our book of business data is actually really starting to try to track those parameters, those different uh, those different factors, and seeing how we're doing from an outcome standpoint, because we're very data-driven in everything that we do. Um, so we've started collecting race and ethnicity data from all of our patients. We've also started following things like the area deprivation index, so that marker of how uh, how privileged or how deprived an area is based on the geography, you know, what the average incomes are, what the housing costs are, what the food availability is, all of those things. And the thing that's so exciting is when you look at our six-month data with thousands and thousands of patients, uh, whether we're talking about the people that are in the most disadvantaged groups, so the worst from an area deprivation index standpoint, or the ones that are in the least disadvantaged um, quintile of the ADI, we see the same types of A1C improvement at the end of six months. And we see the same types of 50% plus medication deprescription. And the same thing is true when you look at race and ethnicity. So again, it doesn't matter what someone's background is or what their socioeconomic status and geography is, we're seeing the same A1C improvements and we're seeing the same medicine D prescriptions. And I think what that really speaks to is the way that our coaches are able to personalize the treatment. You have to understand not just what someone needs metabolically with carb restriction, but you also need to understand what their environment is, whether they're struggling with budget, whether they're vegetarian or vegan, whether they have religious restrictions, whether they have cultural preferences. All of those things need to be taken into consideration. If you're just sending someone a menu they can't follow, you're not doing them any favors. You need to really help to craft that individualized nutrition plan for them that can work metabolically, but can also be enjoyable and sustainable. Um, are there any reasons Banner or Aetna or any of the other clients you have would say goodbye to you? I mean, they're they're saving money on their cohort. They're achieving the aim of uh, people actually getting better for a change, which is unheard of. I don't know of anybody like Word of Health out there that's accomplished what you've done. Uh, I can't imagine why your clients would ever leave you. Do you have a pretty good renewal rate with your clients? Yeah, we have a, a really excellent renewal rate. You know, the... Uh, the bottom line is that we're always trying to demonstrate our value uh, to the partners that we work with. And so, you know, a great example of that, you mentioned this previously, Banner Aetna actually had a press release just back here in April of 23, uh, looking at their data for folks that have been able to work with us for at least six months. And what it showed was that value that you were just talking about, you know, that at six months, the A1C on average was down by 1.4 points, which we know makes a difference for people medically in terms of their prognosis. Their medicines, 50% of the diabetes-specific meds had already been deprescribed. They were also losing weight. They were already 8.2% below their baseline body weight. And so you're right. When you start to see that people are not only having those higher metabolic status risks for worse outcomes in the future, but also deprescribing medicines that are becoming more and more costly, you know, the bottom line is that it ends up being a little bit of a no-brainer, so to speak. You know, if you looked at your medical school class, I doubt anybody else can make the claim they're deprescribing medications every day or every week. I mean, and I'll I'll take the year. Let's let's take that year that you graduated. I'll I'll bet you none of the other physicians are can make that claim. 
Yeah, I think that it statistically, that's probably true. I know when I was working as a primary care physician in internal medicine, doing what I was taught to do in medical school, it was the rare exception when I was able to see someone improve so much with a lifestyle change that I was able to deprescribe medicines. And in fact, I've got a couple of faces flashing in my memory right now because they were so rare and they were such treasures. And it was the kind of thing that always led me just to smile from ear to ear, maybe to even do a happy dance in front of the patient because I was so pleased with what I was seeing. But it was the exception to the rule. So this is not about willpower. This is not grit your teeth because shaming has been the traditional way doctors get their patients to deprescribe anything is you, you, you know, wire your mouth shut. You're eating too much. You're not walking enough. So just, you know, at dinner time, just, you know, buckle up. That's not the message y'all or your coaches are giving your, your consumers. Yeah. One of the messages that we really enjoy sharing with our, with our members as they join us is that it is not your fault. We know that you have been trying hard, but the way that you have been trying to do this is fighting your physiology instead of working with your physiology. And so again, it's not that it doesn't take effort. This is a lifestyle change. And there are definitely things one has to do to implement habits and routines and rituals and to be able to really try to hold to something that is working well. But what we've shown in our data, not only in the clinical study, but now in our book of business is that people can do it with the support. And there are a couple of key aspects to that. One is again, people are eating real enjoyable satiating foods. Two, they're eating to satiety. They're not having to go away from the table hungry and starving. They shouldn't be hungry in between meals. And then the final thing is that they've got this real-time feedback from their body so that if they do something that doesn't work with the metabolism, we're not waiting until we're three months of going off the tracks before we're trying to get back on track, which is really hard. Rather, we're looking at it in real time and the coach is there to support them and say, hey, let's talk a little bit about last night. What can we learn from that? Why did it happen? What do you think? And what do you think that we can do next time this comes up so it doesn't happen the same way again? It's just such an actionable, teachable moment for people in contrast to the A1C at six months. I would say most people, when they think of high protein or low carb diets, are thinking high protein keto. Uh, it's going to be tasteless. They're not going to enjoy the food. They're going to have to eat all these substitute foods and they're not going to like them. Um, how do you get past that with the individual? Yeah, so a lot of it is education. We have quite a few people who come to us skeptical based upon just years and years of trying things that sounded too good to be true and ultimately were too good to be true and they didn't find it enjoyable or sustainable. Um, but again, we are not asking people to replace meals. We're not sending them bars or shakes, shakes or soup mixes or menus that they actually can't enjoy or can't afford. Rather, we start to actually, when we start to educate them, the coach works one-on-one -on -one with them to understand what foods they enjoy already. And then they build from that. They adapt from that to do it in a way that's better for their metabolism. Uh, so a lot of it is really just about the education and reminding people we're talking about real foods and actually doing the real foods in a very satisfying way where you've got those satiety components. When you have higher fat foods, foods with a moderate amount of protein, they are much more satisfying usually for people in terms of how they feel in the mouth, how they feel in the stomach, and how they keep people from feeling as hungry in between meals. I'll tell you from a personal standpoint, you know, I, I actually had followed a, a, a whole food plant-based lifestyle myself for about three years, um, a number of years ago. And, and I'm not trying to knock this approach. I think there were really some health benefits from that. But I will tell you that I've been doing a lower carb approach now for the last five years. If you told me I had to give up the real enjoyable, satisfying foods that I get to eat now uh, for this healthy lifestyle approach, for that lifestyle approach, a whole food plant-based approach, which I did previously, I'd be pretty disappointed. And just yeah. because I wouldn't be able to enjoy so many things that I really, really do enjoy now. You know, the timing of this interview is interesting because Jenny Craig just declared bankruptcy. They told all their members, sorry, uh, didn't work. 
and it never worked in the first place. None of the diets seem to work. They're 5% success and 95% of people fall back to the original weight. Um, they're an $80 billion scam industry, basically. Uh, I would not want to be anybody like Jenny Craig competing against you because you're not at 5%, you're at 50% after five years. Yeah. Um, so is, are you going after consumers as well as companies and uh, plans? Well, so we have a lot of different ways that we try to reach people and, and make what we do available to them. Uh, you know, so we still work with a larger, a lot of large employers uh, that are uh, self-funded or partially self-funded. So we still have that kind of business to business to consumer model. We're also working a lot more with health plans um, to try to make this as available as possible. And so, you know, again, Banner Aetna is one example of a partner there. Another one that just recently had a press release uh, was Blue Shield of California, where, avail where we're available um, to their members through multiple lines of business. Uh, so again, that's another place where we get to reach so many people, whether we're talking about Medicare and Medicare Advantage or whether we're talking about someone that's in a traditional fully insured population. Uh, we do have a direct to consumer uh, availability as well. And so someone can just go to our website and uh, they can apply for the program and sign up on their own. But the bottom line is that in those situations, people are paying for it out of pocket. And our general approach when we're working with employers or health plans or health systems is to try to always make this service available to people without any cost to the individual, to make it a no-brainer for them. I'm glad you're doing this for individuals. What is the price per month for subscription? Uh, you know, I actually don't know that off the top of my head. I'm <laughs> okay. Well, I'm asking another business question that's not fair to ask a CMO, but what is the return on investment if a company engages y'all have you calculated the cost savings for uh all that's involved with getting people off this treadmill yeah so we try to do that with every partner that we have we try to look at their demographics so how prevalent diabetes is within their population and what their diabetes spend is we really want to understand how how costly those medications are and then based upon that we actually are able to apply a formula that's based upon a study that we did that was looking at a large set of commercial populations uh, where we were actually looking at claims data so we were looking at the data before how much their their spend was on medical spend uh, for the individuals before the treatment, and then at the end of two years of treatment, how that had changed, and then how that also compared then to a control population within those same groups, those same commercial groups. So we had a difference in differences analysis. So you know, bottom line is that with traditional diabetes care, the cost, the medical cost, goes up every year. And then we looked at then how the cost went down and down further in our treatment over one to two years. And so based upon that, we can apply it to any given population based on their demographics and try to project what that ROI is going to be. And then, of course, we work with our partners to actually validate that at the end of one year, at the end of the next year, to show that it's really panning out that way. Um, what, so a couple what kind of, of numbers are coming up then, Frank? Are you getting um, a, a, an ROI you can talk about? So, you know, in general, we're always trying to achieve at least a two to one ROI uh, by the end of the second year. And sometimes it's considerably better than that. And you have to understand what we're talking about with ROI here is hard dollar savings. We're actually talking about a difference in the medical spend, you know, based upon deep prescription of medications and decrease in complications and ER visits and services that they just don't need because they've had that metabolic improvement. So we're talking hard dollar. We're not taking into consideration things like presenteeism and absenteeism and, and such. Um, when, I, when I talk about the 10 to 1 ratio earlier in the show, at the top of the show, PBG&H is the largest uh, employer buying group in the country by far. They're number one. And Randa Deaton was on our show oh, about 20, 30 shows ago. And she said that the largest study that's ever been done about primary care, direct, direct primary care in specific, is it's a 10 to 1 when you throw in those soft costs. 
-hmm. it's one to one to two to one to three to one when you don't when you just do the hard like you're talking about so i suspect if a company wanted to take the time to measure those issues that you just mentioned and their workers comp claims people that are can't can't work they're sick they have they're at home watching some video with oprah winfrey so that is uh i think two to one i think is extremely conservative and yeah. possibly by half yeah so we we try to be on the conservative side we really try to focus on the hard numbers a couple of other things i would just add um, one is that we do start to see a positive return within the first months of treatment and so this is a very different conversation than you know a lot of wellness type services where you're trying to promise returns maybe several years out um, when you start to avoid some of the outcomes. You know, because of the fact that we're deprescribing meds and deprescribing so quickly, they actually start to see that return on investment happening within the first months, which is really exciting for partners for us, because then they don't end up having to make this huge investment. They actually start seeing the, the program pay for itself. Um, the second thing is we also have some peer-reviewed publications on some of the other benefits that we see in the metabolic space. It isn't just the diabetes and the weight loss and the medicines that improve. You know, we've been able to demonstrate and publish on the fact that there are improvements in things like cardiovascular risk factors, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, depression scores improve markedly. So fewer people qualify for a diagnosis of depression at 10 weeks, and that sustains out to two years. Uh, osteoarthritis, so knee pain and functionality, which goes to kind of what you were talking about in terms of things like, you know, the musculoskeletal problems with regard to employees, those improve at 10 weeks and sustain out to two years as well. So those aren't built in to our modeling for ROI. And yet we know we have a positive impact on these types of things as well. Frank, are you also deep prescribing hypertension drugs and other cardiovascular disease drugs? Yeah, we do that in conjunction with the local team. Uh, so certainly we're watching blood pressure and in individuals who are improving quickly and are on higher risk blood pressure medicines uh, because sometimes it's easy for them to be overtreated. And so we need to back off on the blood pressure medicine so that they don't pass out or have some other kind of adverse problem. Um, but that being said, you know, the blood pressure management is something that we often will want to work collaboratively with the local team, especially if someone's working with a cardiologist. Uh, so sometimes it'll be more of a cooperative effort in terms of deprescribing. But the short answer is yes, uh, it's not always done just by us. And the same thing is true with some of the lipid medicines as well. Triglycerides, high triglycerides improve markedly with this approach. And so for a lot of the individuals with diabetes or without diabetes that have really high triglyceride levels and have ended up on medicines like a class of meds called the fibrates, a lot of times those medicines are no longer necessary and can be deprescribed as well. I got to tell you, I can hear the excitement in your voice. You know, there's three ways to lessen your medication bill. One is to uh, basically go with one of these wholesale pharmacies we've had on the show. Uh, where they sell generics at one to four cents a pill for a small subscription fee every month. Another is to go with uh, patient assistance programs that can pay for the meds, which pays for about half the potentially could pay for half the meds in America because about half the people make under 15 bucks an hour. And then the third way is the best way, and that is to get rid of the problem at the root <laughs> source, which you're ripping basically the weeds out of the ground instead of trimming the weeds and dealing with the consequences. Yeah. Yep. Well, very good. What, what should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? I love talking to you because it's so refreshing to hear we finally have a solution to the lifestyle diseases that are killing half of the Americans. Well, I think one of the things that has really been on our mind and has been a part of a lot of our conversations, and maybe this is a, a topic for another discussion, uh, but is where we've actually been headed uh, as a population in terms of trying to address metabolic health. And one of the things that's really been uh, somewhat frightening to see is 
the way that we've really been, I think, um, grasping for straws, if you will, in terms of medications to try to help. And, and there are some good parts and bad parts of this. And so I certainly don't mean to vilify medications for metabolic health. You know, there's really an appropriate place for those. Uh, but the thing that's really been on our minds is the GLP-1 receptor agonist medications. Uh, so these are things like Trulicity and Ozempic and Bidurian and Victoza. And then there are some versions of these that are now being used for weight loss, uh, like Wagovi, for example. Um, and, and these are medicines that, quite honestly, I would have loved to have had when I was practicing as a PCP with traditional care, because they're very effective in terms of things like glucose control and helping with weight loss. Um, but again, it's one of those things where I think you can ask the question of, even though it's showing improvement, is it really the best, most efficient, most effective approach to the problem? Uh, and these medicines are very expensive and they need to be taken in perpetuity in order for people to be able to maintain those improvements. Uh, and so a lot of our discussion with our partners, whether it's employers or whether it's health partners, you know, health plan partners, is you know, how do we navigate this new world where there's some very new effective medicines available, but at a very significant cost with some potential for side effect, as all medicines have. Um, you know, how does a company like Verta fit into that paradigm? How do we actually help uh, so that people can have choices available to them and choose the right option for themselves? Because your subscription fee is not eight hundred to twelve hundred a month, which is what Olympic costs. Exactly. There's no way you can compare. You're you're in a different world. It's it's like a blue ocean strategy. They're not even in your world. Um, it's, it's an interesting question. Well, Frank, thank you again. I read somewhere or heard somewhere that you play violin and your son's actually pretty good at it. And <laughs> I just want to tell you this this uh, conversation is music not only to my ears but every listener who's tuning in. And if you didn't hear the first interview and you want to, um, get more acquainted with some of the more details of how uh, Verta pulls this off. You can listen to previous episodes where Frank talked about this at episode 144. So Frank, uh, thank you again. How do people reach you if they want to connect with you or Verta Health? Well, I think the best thing would actually be to start with our website, which is vertahealth.com. So V-I-R-T-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. Okay. And then um, if you know this question's coming because you heard it before, but if you could fly a banner overhead with one message for America, what would that message be? That metabolic disease is reversible. Yeah, it's an option now. It's an absolute yeah. option, and even for consumers. Frank, thank you again, and I'll look forward to catching up with you in a year or two. This is all very exciting. All right. Well, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One Go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode. <laughs>